Hey, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that the show is both on Instagram and Twitter under Unstructured P. Please come by, check it out if you like the show, say hello, and tell me what you think. Thanks. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today, from the dark side of the internet, I bring you Jack Resider hey. of Darkneck Diaries. And joining me to help determine what went wrong on the internet and who's to blame as well is Jason DeFilippo. Yo, yo. How are you guys doing? Excellent. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's awesome to have you, man. Now, I want to start out the episode on an important note. From what I understand, you went from dealing to selling drugs. Can you explain? Oh, my gosh. That's true. Oh, my gosh. This is... This is really going back. So yes, I was, I was, I got my degree in computer engineering. This is Jack talking. <laughs> and I, I, what I, what happened was I couldn't find a, I couldn't find a job doing computers. Right. So I was doing, I got a degree in computer engineering. I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't find it. And so I went to Vegas and that has a, <laughs> that has the capability of corrupting a person. Right. Sure. But what I found, what I found, fell in love with was just the, the the casinos and i decided to become a dealer at the casino so i was dealing craps and that's the dice game and that was fun it's the only fun game i think because all the other games you're just standing there you're the only dealer at the table mm. but with craps you have like four other dealers and you start developing a friendship and it's it's a quite a wild game and that was just so much fun to do for a year and then I don't know, Vegas gets to you. So I felt like I had a hole in my pocket that I could not find where it was. <laughs> so I, I moved and I got a job at a pharmacy doing, uh, filling prescriptions. So that was the drugs part of that, uh, dealing in the drugs. So yeah, I was a pharmacy technician for a little while. And uh, yeah, I was just good at typing. So I was just putting the labels on the bottles and giving that to someone. Is there to a similar mindset between hackers and gamblers? <laughs> No, I don't think so. <laughs> now you went from when did you, when were you out of school? What year was that? Oh, that was um, decades ago. <laughs> I'll say that much. So yeah, let's say early two thousand. Okay, I am asking because at that same time period, I was really surprised to find out that you got the uh, CCNA, CCDA, um, CCMP, and on down the line. I was teaching at University of Arizona, EU in 2001 mm -hmm. through like 2003. So right around the same time, but I was teaching electrical engineers, Cisco. Huh? Yeah. So it wasn't for a long time after that. I, I, you know, after doing that, uh, you know, tour of non-computer stuff for a while, I had said, okay, I want to go back to my roots and get a computer job. But I was rusty at that point. It had been, you know, 10 years since I graduated. So that's when I went back and got a Cisco cert just to make myself look fresh and, and, you know, up to date. And that's what got me a job in a network operation center, monitoring a network for faults and problems. Now, Jason, I believe was programming around that time and all throughout that time, right? Yeah, I started around 95. That was really when I, well, I mean, I've had a computer since the mid eighties, but I got into web programming around 95 and uh, moved to LA in 96 and became pretty much a, a web programmer at that point. Now, Jack, I have a strange question for you. Lime Link, that's your blog to help podcasters, essentially. Mm -hmm. Is that a callback to LimeWire? 
No, I, I, I stress about what I'm going to call things because I have a lot of little projects I've made. And one thing I just thought would be interesting, I found this domain called lime.link. Like it's not limelink.com, it's lime.link. And I thought that's a cool domain. So uh, I just thought that would be something fun to grab and do something with. And then, um, you know, I finally turned it into a blog. I was going to make some really cool podcasting tool, but that fell through. So it's just a blog now. Hmm. Is figuring out the um, podcasting monetization kind of a throwback, though, you know, to your security and hacking and looking at systems? A throwback to what? The idea of engineering, looking into systems, finding patterns or vulnerabilities, things like that. No, I think it's more, I just grew up around with the computers, you know, throughout my whole life. So I was just like watching the dot-com boom and watching like the Bitcoin boom and seeing all these like millionaires coming from the internet and thinking, where, how do I get in on some of this, right? So I always wanted to make, be some sort of entrepreneur and make something on my own. And so that's where kind of the monetization of the podcast comes from. It's wanting to build my career off the internet somehow, like make money online. And that's, that's working out for me. Finally. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of your talents I really am impressed with is you're able to break down some really complex topics into something that's much more accessible. And I I think you've talked about a VPN article that took you a few years. Was that what helped you tailor your language to turn you into a bit of a teacher? Yeah. So, yeah, I've had a blog called tunnelsup.com while I was working as a, uh, in a network operations center and as a network engineer and security engineer. And um, yeah, I was just, when I Googled something, I couldn't find the answer. I knew somebody needs to write about this online. So I'd figure out the answer and then blog about it. So it's, it's, you know, those really weird off, you know, one-off problems that you're going to run into that maybe someone else has that same problem. So yeah, I started blogging about these problems that I was hitting as an engineer. And that was, that was helping me learn how to explain complex topics simply. And I did that for like nine years. There's a, there's a few hundred articles I wrote there. And yeah, there was some like a, like a VPN article that I wrote over and over and over again to, to improve how, it, how, you know, to read it easier and easier and just give like the most, you know, f- the, the fastest way to find the answer. When you go to a website, you don't want to scroll through like six pages of, of fluff before getting to the answer. You want the answer right at like the first paragraph. And so that's what I was just kind of, redoing some of those articles to seeing how people are getting there, like what Google terms are searching to get to that article and then saying, oh, let's just put that right in the first sentence then. And so I was just getting better and better at, you know, explaining complex stuff simply. And yes, I do think that did pave the way for my podcast to be able to jump in some of these really complex topics of of hacking and stuff and explain it in as simple of the terms as I can. See, blogging turns out to be useful for something. Yeah. (laughs) I agree. Yeah, I encourage a lot of people to blog. It's still it's still pretty good to to get your chops down for writing. I ran a blog network for nine years, so I was writing every day, and it really does help you like hone your message. I, I definitely agree with that. Did you force yourself to write every day? Every single day, because I had a team of five hundred writers that were part of my network that I built, and if I can't lead by example, then who's going to? That's great. Yeah, you have to, especially in that that kind of scenario. And we were doing citizen journalism though, so I, I mean, we had people all around the world. So it, it's it was a good thing to see, like you know, people from the home base, like keeping up with it because you know we had writers in Pakistan and India and all like literally all over. 
So it was, it was a good thing. And it kept, it really motivated me to also, you know, hone, hone my message quickly because it's like, okay, I, I have to do this every day. I don't want to do it every day. So let's see how much we can pack into an article as concisely as possible and as quickly as possible, but still get the message across. That's super. I'm curious too, Jack, on blue team versus red team in your security career. Did you ever work on a red team? I think you've said you haven't, but. No, I haven't. I've always done blue team work. I guess I just never had the opportunity or maybe didn't feel confident enough to do the red team stuff. So this is um, attacking and doing penetration tests and that kind of thing. It always sounded so exciting, but it always sounded scary at the same time. Like, do I know how to do that? I I think so, but I don't know, right? Like if I miss something critical and then, you know, a hacker uses that to get into the network, boy, I'm going to feel terrible that I didn't catch that. So yeah, I've never done red team work. Does this show help kind of fill some of that desire? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I kind of live vicariously through some of the some of the people I interview and, and get to see where they go and do what they do. But um, I mean, I've done some lab work where I set up a vulnerable machine and I try hacking into it. And I've done some competitions and challenges, just very minor things. And so, yeah, I do get I do get to have fun with it sometimes. And that, I think, fulfills it enough. I also wanted to ask about the uh, Cassandra syndrome that you've talked about. <laughs> well, um, yeah, so the Cassandra, well, I think it goes like this, where you feel like the world is falling apart or it's coming to an end, but there's nothing you can do to, like, prevent it, right? right? So that's, I think, what Cassandra syndrome is. And I think, I think when you tune in enough, uh, uh, you know, and tune into enough, like, news and and look at the online world enough, you, you start feeling that. And I certainly feel that. I feel like the world is kind of crashing down and imploding. And what can we do about it? It's weird. Does the show make you feel less or more paranoid? Well, I think for the first couple years, it was, this is just stuff I know. And I'm just publishing like stories I've heard. So like, you know, go to a conference, you hear someone talk about it. And you're like, okay, yeah, let's, let's get that, you know, on my show and just talk about the same thing. Um, and then also news stories that I've already heard. But now that I've been doing it a couple of years, I'm digging into some deeper stories that I was not aware of at all. And um, yeah, I think I think it's now starting to um, get a little bit more serious and of, of, of like, wow, this is um, this. I don't know, like the threat just seems bigger than I initially thought it was or it's different or nuanced or out of control or unpatchable or something is out there where it just doesn't feel, it doesn't feel as safe as I thought we were. And it's hard to put my finger on it because you can, you can secure a lot of stuff, but you can't secure everything at the same time. Like it's a weird combination. Do you ever worry about getting hacked yourself or any kind of payback? Yeah, I think that there's probably some hackers out there that want the feather in their cap of saying, oh, I hacked Jack Ray Sider, the hacker podcaster guy. So I do have to worry about that. And I also worry about, um, you know, maybe I'm digging into a story that some corporation doesn't want me to talk about or some country doesn't want me to talk about. And so that country might be wanting to know what I'm going to say. And so I think that, you know, I have to be careful in those senses as well of, uh, you know, make sure that my systems are clean and and safe and secure as well. I'm just my, the computers I use to get online and do research and stuff. So you use separate systems for things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, lucky for me, I, I understand the security world pretty well to know how to, um, you know, get through things pretty well. Like I get sent a lot of links from people, right? A lot of emails would look at this article <laughs> and I've got to be very careful on what links I click on. Oh, I'm sure. 
how do you how do you mitigate that though? I mean, if if all you see is darkness in that, do you ever step away from it or do anything else to kind of get your mind out of it? Well, yeah, I mean, I ride my bicycle a lot and sometimes I just lay on the floor with headphones on and listen to music and kind of disappear as well. And those things do relax me. Um, I don't know, but I just think be myself getting educated on it myself, I feel like if I can understand it, I'll feel safer or better about it as if, as opposed to, you know, not knowing who these people are that are behind the screen. Because when you think about like, oh, hackers did this thing or hackers hacked into that, you think about like, whatever it is that comes in your mind is probably not what happened, right? right. Like uh, some kids or I don't know, some Russians, it probably wasn't that, right? It was probably something else. And so kind of looking through the screen and seeing exactly who exactly was this oh it was some guy in miami from you know this other country and he was working with this other group and they were very professional about it like it's very it's fascinating to see okay that's that's the capabilities of that street hacking group or something and and knowing what they're capable of and knowing you know what kind of things that they are motivated to do. And I think that kind of puts you, it, it kind of under, you, you recognize your risk a little better. Like where, what would threaten me, right? There would be people who would be after money or after the information that I have. And that kind of, you know, I don't know if they, maybe that's limited to just that, right? Um, now, if you're a bigger company, you may have access to other things like money or extra information or access to another person that somebody wants to get to. So you have to understand your threat landscape and who would be motivated to get into those people or things or, you know, and, and I think the more I understand that, the better I feel safe knowing, um, you know, what what's out there and what the capabilities are. Have you ever declined or spiked a story because it just, would be a little bit too dangerous. Too dangerous, yes. There's well, there's a few that I'm sitting on right now that I know about that I am worried about. Um, one is about a guy who well, he's got a quite a wild life, and just to put just to talk about one part of his story is that he he will bait pedophiles on the dark net and then go beat them up at mm. their house, right? So he'll he'll act like a young boy and then go over there and beat them up. And I'm like, well, that's very interesting, but how do I prove this, right? There's no there's no one backing up this story at all. So I, I do a lot of fact checking on so many things. Mm -hmm. And since I can't check that one, I can't do anything about it. And then there's another story I know about where um, a corporation has hired some hackers to take down another corporation. And this one, I think <laughs> I'm worried about too, because I think that corporation was very trying to keep that story very secret and does not want it out and did so much to, you know, possibly cause harm about some of the people who investigated it in the past. So I am worried about that one. And I want to make sure I have all my, <laughs> all my ducks in a row before publishing that one, because that one is going to be a big one. How do you deal with anonymity? I know I've heard, an actor voice a, a part for you. Is that your usual way to do? Um, well, there, I mean, there's a few things, right? You just, you just stay, you stay safe online by not talking about your personal life, not talking about like where you live or, you know, what, what your family's like and stuff like that. And I think that that kind of mitigates some things like people can't identify you as easily then, 
right? Because if you're just going to publish all that stuff on Facebook or something, then yeah, somebody could just walk right over to your house and knock on the door. So, you know, you want to make it harder for someone to find that stuff. So I just don't, I don't voluntarily put that stuff online. And I think that's a big step on, on maintaining safety. I apologize. I met your sources. How do you deal with their <laughs> anonymity? Yes, their anonymity. Um, their anonymity. So, uh, yeah, I have um, done a voice actor for one who re- who did not want their voice on the show, and I have another one lined up as well. They they want. There's a group of people that want to tell a story, but they don't want their voice to be on there. So we're going to have voice actors for them. Um, some people. I mean, I, I a lot of people are like, hey, you know, I I did this crime, I did this time, and I'm out of prison now, and I don't mind sharing the whole story, and so they they don't mind you know, giving their full name and stuff, which is so fascinating to hear. Because when you hear my story, you don't know what this end is going to be, right? So you hear this guy, right. and he's telling you about how he hacked this thing and did all this illegal stuff. And you're like, why is this guy saying all this? <laughs> it was 2003. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then you find out it's 2003. So then, you know, it's already gone to jail for five years. Uh, but you don't fear that until the end. Do you have people coming to pitch you stories now? Or do you still have to go out and find the stories yourself? At this point, I do have a lot of pitches which is good. And then, um, yeah, there's a lot of fans that send me links as well saying, hey, this is a really interesting article. It reads just like one of your shows. You could probably turn it into an episode pretty easily. So it's really nice having this uh, kind of flux of of stuff. But at the same time, I've got people sending me their life stories. It's not like there was somebody tweeting the other day, like sometimes I send someone like a message and it just starts out like as a single sentence. But then it turns out to like a full-on blog post by the time I'm done sending them a message. And that's what I get. I get like people sending massive blog post style size emails to me saying this is what I did and this is all the crimes I committed. And I'm just like, wow, this is, <laughs> this is something else. How do you vet? Well, that's that's a very important part of the whole story process, right? I don't want to be publishing things you know, irresponsibly or without checking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do... I do ask for, you know, any sort of police reports or indictment forms or criminal, you know, court cases or anything that helps a lot. Um, anybody I can, I can, you know, confirm through, a, th- through another way, right? So does anyone else that I know, know this person? Or can I, you know, discover them, not through them, because if I say, hey, can you give me another mm-hmm. number to call so I can call some of your friend, then, you know, that could be staged, right? But if I say, wait a minute, I know this person knows them, I'll go through them to see if they can connect me or something. And that, and that helps. So I'll call people on the phone and, I'll, and I will call their parents or friends or whoever I can to just uh, corroborate the story and say, hey, is, uh, is this the, do you know anything about the story? And then they'll, they'll tell me, you know. What, you know what's going on there, and it usually gets me a lot more information that maybe the maybe the person embellished, or there's certain parts that weren't true, and I have to kind of reel back on some of those parts as well. What formula are you seeking, though, that would make a tale a great Darknet Diaries story versus one that, well, that's really interesting, but it's maybe not quite right? I I think I kind of hit the jackpot on just <laughs> so many of these tales just work just by themselves, like. There was a hacker who was motivated to do this thing, and then he broke into this, you know, computer, and he took the stuff. But then he got caught, and it's like, well, that sounds great, right there. Just tell me that story. How did everything happen, right? But um, as far as storytelling goes, I do like stories that have twists. So if you think it's going in one way, and then it just totally changes direction on you, 
and goes a totally different way. I love that. I mean, I, and I specifically love true stories so much more than fictional stories because how those twists just take place and how things completely change. I couldn't write, like if I was writing a fictional story, I just, that would just be such a left ball. Like there's no way that story is tracking. Right. But if it's a true story and it changes, it twists so crazy, then I love that. And if it can twist like another time during that, then that's totally a golden story. And I love that so much when there's just two twists, major turn of events in the story. So like one turn of event might be like, well, just hacking into something. And then the other one is getting caught, right? So those two big things, like we can have a big lead up to hacking, doing the hack and another big lead up to getting caught. And now we've got like, you know, a half hour or an hour long story that we can go over. What's really cool about this. um, I know that you are, a fan of this American life. And I had Margot Lightman on who teaches storytelling and she was a story scout for this American life. What you're describing is almost the formula that she gave. Well, yeah, you're right. I am a fan and I've obsessed over Ira Glass in a lot. And he's (laughs) explained that same thing of of looking for the twists in the stories. And I even got to meet him uh, last year or this year, boy, time flies. And uh, he's, yeah, he's just such a uh, inspiration to me. Are you going to any conferences? I usually go to DEF CON every year, and that's the big one. I don't get to go out too much, but I do plan on going to that one every year. How about podcasting conferences? Um, I, yeah, I want to go to some. I haven't been any yet. So, well, I guess I went to PodCon once, but that's been closed. They had it a couple of years and stopped it. But yeah, I would like to go to Third Coast at some point. And uh, that's the big one I think I'd like to go to is Third Coast. Cool. I know a lot of people would probably like to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Like there was a, there was pod podcast movement earlier this year mm-hmm. and there were some people from there um, texting me saying, Hey, are you here? And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, there's so many people talking about you. You, I wish you were here because there's, there are like people from Apple who want to meet you from Apple at podcasts. And I'm like, what? Just tell them to feature my show. Like, <laughs> like that's, if they like it, then they should put me on there. <laughs> the top of their recommended list or something, right? You sound like Jason. What, where's my check? <laughs> hey, man, you got to get paid. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> I want to go back to hacking a little bit. I, I have um, different people on who are behavior social engineers things like that and their view in general is that the weakest part of any network is the people who are working there is that what you found yeah i think it's i think it's probably the case you can you can do a lot of things to trick someone and the thing is is like you can you can even like the, the some of the stuff that like apts use so this is like government hackers and stuff like they'll They'll find someone a job, like they'll find someone who works there and pay them to like flip, right? So, I mean, how do you even protect against that? Like, hey, if we give you like a couple thousand, can you put this file on a USB key and give it to us? Like, wow, maybe there's someone on their way out. That's like, that's totally fine with me. I'll do that. So just keep this under the radar, right? So how, like, there's so many ways of getting into someone or tricking someone that you just can barely defend against, like you can't even do. And yeah, you never know when someone's just done working there and they want to just cause harm or, or you know, betray the company or something. And uh, yeah, and then the fact that there's a phishing that's going on and people being predictable, predictable and uh, volunteering all kinds of information online and sharing things, it's just like, it's, uh, yeah, I would say that it is the weakest link. 
Have you had on any or met any old school folks like Kevin Mitnick, et cetera? Um, yeah, I've met Kevin Mitnick at, at DEF CON. Um, the, uh, yes, and, I'm, and I've met a lot of old school folks. The last DEF CON here, I was talking to a lot of people who were, uh, you know, around in the scene in the early 90s and doing freaking and wares and cracking and demo scene. And I do want to do a big episode kind of rounding up all of what was going on in the 90s. Um, because I think it's kind of cool, but every time I, I start working on something, there's someone from the eighties who comes to me and says, Hey, <laughs> you should, you should go to the old scene, man. And I'm like, Oh yeah, I guess it goes even further back. So, um, it's weird. It's not, I, it's hard to know where to start and where I guess, yeah, I mean, some point I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to cover some of the history more because it is fascinating to me and I, and I was there for some of it too. So it was kind of exciting for me. Yeah. Your first exploit, I guess, was SimCity. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, so, so yeah, there was SimCity 1, which I had on like a Windows 95 machine. And uh, uh, we were playing it. My dad and I would play it a lot. And uh, I figured out how to use a hex editor to get into a save game file and change the money in the game to be like a billion Sim dollars or whatever. And it was like a blank map with a, you know as much money as you wanted. And <laughs> we had a lot of fun with that. <laughs> I can imagine. Jason, did you do any of that? Not a whole lot of it. I was uh, I was kind of allergic to jail, so I I tried to stay hacker adjacent. You know, I dated my girlfriend for a long time, for like six or seven years. She worked at twenty six hundred, and uh, I went to the Last Hope conference and hung out with Bernie S and all those guys for a while, and uh, found out that yeah, a lot of these guys go to jail, and I am very allergic to jail, so. I didn't really get into it, but I was, I, I loved watching it. I loved learning. I learned a ton of stuff that I used on the job, but yeah, I tried not to get too into anything that could land me in the who's cow. There seems to be a lot of gamers who kind of transfer into overall hacking. Is that a common theme you found Jack? Yeah, I do agree. I think, um, I mean, here's what, here's my theory. A grand theory on that is where you have like a teenager who has no big responsibilities as a teenager, right? So they come home from high school mm-hmm. and they get to play, like they have the luxury of having a computer in their bedroom. So they play computer games forever, all night long, all weekend long. And that's what they're like glued into. And, you know, at some point they say, well, how do I, how do I change this thing? Or how do I fix that? Or how do I update that? Or how do I do this? And so they learn about computers and they, and just through kind of necessity, they learn how to like make the video game a little better or tweak it or change it or mod it and maybe even take it a step further. Right. And, and start hacking it in a way that's similar to my SimCity hack, right? Like how can we totally break this game to make it cheat in a way that you know, I can defeat it in that way, right? Like that becomes the game. And so it's just a ma- the combination of just having the having the luxury of time of being in front of a computer for so long and the and the and having a computer in your bedroom. Like there's just those two things alone kind of is a jackpot for incubating a hacker, right? If you didn't grow up with either of those things, you, you didn't have any time to use a computer or you didn't have a computer, then you're gonna have a lot harder time you know, knowing how to get it to break and work and stuff. So it's just just a matter of sitting in front of it for so long gets you to that place of like, how can we, how can we do more with this? And yeah, wanting to be competitive as well, like it has that driving force of let's hack it. And probably some immaturity in there too. Um, I know you had uh, at least one guest on, I can't remember the episode, but I was like, whew, 
he's he was borderline, extremely borderline, and he talked about killing characters that people had taken two, three years to build. And yeah. I couldn't help but think to myself, there were some people whose whole life revolved around the game so much and the character they committed suicide when they yeah, lost I've their characters. That. I wonder, is that a true story that people actually committed suicide? I've heard it, though. So I, I need to check into that. But you're right. Yeah, like some griefers get just love making people like so frustrated with the game that they end up, you know, doing some horrible things. And that was one of the guys that was was doing that yeah and he was trying to hack other people's accounts and stuff as well and that makes me think of a more modern day where we have uh doxing and even worse swatting do you have any thoughts yeah yeah that's that's a problem i'm not sure our industry the infosec industry is like working on so much like if you go to like one of these security conferences like uh, rsa or um black hat you're gonna see tons of vendors solving every security problem under the sun like this is a firewall and this is a packet capture machine. And these are all the, uh, you know, threat intelligence tools you have, but there's nobody's like, Oh, well here we can do, we have an anti-swatting tool. <laughs> like what you, this is just not something that I don't think anyone's working on. And just the fact that like underage teenagers, like 13, 14, 15 doing things to their school or library or each other, um, or uh, yeah, online, I, I, I just don't know. Like that there's just not, there's not enough money or people focusing on this problem to like fix it. Like the schools have a budget, but they just don't have that big of a budget to like, you know, swing the swing the way that the, that the cyber world is like fixing problems. So uh, it's, I think it's a huge problem that goes un, unresolved because it's just so, I don't know. It's so nasty or simple or, or hard to fix it's just a really big problem. And, and yeah, it scares me that teenagers are, are I mean, for one, they're going to possibly ruin someone else's life, but they're also going to ruin their own life. And it's just terrible. Yeah. We've had a swatting death now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was, uh, yeah, that was, that, that bothers me. <laughs> like it, it I, cause it's just, it's such an easy thing. You make a phone call and you, and that's it. Like, ugh. yeah. How do you engineer around that? You know, it's like, okay, we have to call back the house. What's the location setting? Because people can spoof their location. And do you want to open the door for actual bad guys who are in the house actually doing, you know, crimes to be able to bypass that system? It's really a tough one when you when you put your mind to it. Because we, we, we talked yeah. about swatting on Grumpy Old Geeks for a while. And it's like, that's one of those ones where it's like, it, it's an old school problem. And is there even a technological fix? It seems like it's a manpower fix to deal with the police on the ground. And it comes down to training instead of trying to come come up with some kind of technological fix for it. Yeah. And I don't want to get draconian, but I do think that's one where perhaps an extreme sentence is not necessarily a bad thing. Like if people know that they're caught swatting, they're going down hard. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of the the ultimate fix is to change the attitudes of some of the kids who are doing it to be like, look, that's a very serious offense that you could get in a lot of trouble for. And it's not as exciting or cool as you think it is. So if, if you can make it less cool, then the kids won't do it as much. And that's one way to combat it. Yeah. Like I won't joke about bombs around TSA agents for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jason, you've got, I mean, grumpy old geeks. I'm sure you've got a couple of questions in there about, security and situations well i'm just I'm, I'm more concerned about or not concerned i'm more interested in like how the show's made because when you first started this 
where did you really get into finding the people that were like, you know, your first batch of really good stories that you could dive into? Because it seems like just getting started now that now that the ball's rolling, everybody's going to come to you because you kind of knocked it out of the park with your first episodes. But how did you really like, you know, did you go out and just start talking to people or just scour the news or find people at conferences? How did you really dig in and find those original stories? Yeah, it was a combination of a bunch of things. So the conferences helped a lot because I, I I listened to a ton of talks. There's so many conferences. There's like tons and tons of security conferences out there, hacker conferences, and they're recorded. The talks are recorded. So I would just listen to constantly listen to talks. And, you know, I was listening to podcasts as well. And I was hearing who's who in the scene, right? Who's got good stories? Who's able to share them? Who's already said them and is probably willing to share it again? And so that was one, you know, basket I could pull things out of because they've already said it. So I might as well just tap them on the shoulder and see if they want to say it again. Um, But then also knowing the Twitter landscape and knowing who's who in Twitter and trying to see the bios and see if they're kind of, uh, you know, helps. So I was tapping on just tons of people's shoulders in, in Twitter. Anyone who had an open DM, I was like, hey, you work in DFIR. Do you have any great DFIR stories that you'd be willing to share? One that maybe the FBI was involved or you caught the guy or something, you know, and, and I would just kind of have conversations and see who's who's willing to talk. And literally going through hundreds and hundreds of people um, or at least a hundred. Yeah. At this point, probably hundreds and hundreds, but, um, you know, talking to so many people and just saying, do you have a red team story? Do you have a blue team story? Do you have this and this and this? And, and just finding people with stories and, you know, I just lucked out by just keeping asking and just keeping asking after, you know, 50, I'd find somebody who said yes. And it was an amazing story. And there was actually news articles on it. And I could confirm it through other means and stuff like that. And it's just like, wow, I can't believe I found you randomly. (laughs) This is crazy. But, you know, that was one of the things. And then the think the third basket is news articles. And one of my tricks for doing this was um, setting up Google alerts Mm. so that I would set a Google alert for like hacker uh, captured, hacker sentenced, hacker indicted, hacker released, hacker died. Um, Like any Google alert that has that term in it, uh, I'll get an email that says, oh yeah, this hacker was sentenced. So now when a hacker is sentenced, well, we have the whole story now. We have what they hacked, who they hacked, what they stole, how they got caught, and their sentence. Like, that's that's a complete story, and I love these complete stories, right? So that's the pretty much the end of the story, which means I can finally do that story because so many people send me stories of like, hey, look, at, there's an Equifax breach. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to do this until I find out who it was and what their punishment was and all, you know, the fallout of everything. And so that's kind of what I wait is for that shoe to drop. And usually when a hacker sentenced, it doesn't make that big of a news round in our in our space of InfoSec. So, you know, bringing that back and saying, okay, here's the whole story really helps people understand things that they already heard the story a lot of, but it helps them understand so much more of why, what was the impetus, what was the motive, why, how, how did they do it? How did they get caught? And all this stuff is just super fascinating to a lot of people. Do you have a lot of stories that are um, in mid-development right now, like, you know, waiting for things to finish or drop, et cetera? Yeah, I have this um I have these little whiteboard strips on my wall. I'm looking at it right now and it's kind of on the little track. And so when a when a story's over, I take the strip off and I move all the strips down. And right now I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen interviews I've already completed and recorded. 
of stories that are amazing. And um, that's just on my to-do list for like future episodes. And then besides that, I have going into next year, it's like um, a bunch of people I've already started reaching out to and making rapport with and saying, I would love to, you know, record your story someday. And they're like, okay, let's do it. So I haven't done their stories. So yeah, there's probably 30 stories that I'm working on too many at this point because I can't keep them all in the air. Have you run across a lot of stories where there wasn't actually an outcome? Because I'm thinking of like Aaron Swartz where, you know, he killed himself before oh. he got sentenced. And have you run across many of those stories where, you know, they, they've been convicted of the crime, they're waiting for sentencing and they just can't take it or they've got caught and, you know, they decided to check out because it seems like there might be a lot of those. I was just wondering if you ran across many of them. His Xbox yeah, that was, that was a uh, that was an early struggle I had, actually, was I was reaching out to some other true crime writers and saying, how do you end a story where there's no ending? Right. Like you didn't get they didn't catch the killer or something like what do you do? And they're just they never really helped. They're just like, you just end it where it ends. Like, what do you mean? Like, I'm like, OK, but you, yeah, you're right. Like, in, in my opinion, when a story has enough stuff to talk about and enough evidence to work with and twists and turns, but does but doesn't have an ending, there is like it just kind of you know fizzled out and nobody really caught the person or whatever. Then I still think it's worth talking about, and I'll bring it up on the show and I'll we'll we'll go through it. Um, but yeah, I do struggle with it because like I I hate to end on a sad note as well. Like if if somebody had died or something, like oh well, that's the end of the story. Bye. No, it's kind of like well, what, what can we learn from this? So I'll I'll kind of slow down a little at the end and and come back to something better because the endings are kind of hard. Is that what happened with the Xbox episodes? That there was enough stories going around it that some of the really hard tales that were in there could just sort of be. Um... I'm not saying buried, but does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know if that one so much. That one was just so I, I didn't want to alter that one. I I didn't want to like try to put meaning on that one. It was just so wild and crazy. It was too hard to make sense of any of it. I just kind of let that one breathe on its own. Um, but there have been others where I, I was just like, "This is maddening." <laughs> but let's let's see if we can come up with something at the end nice to say. I can't remember what right now. Do you focus on the rhythm of episodes as they come out? Like, you know, I might have an interview, for example, and I just am like, whoa, that was so strong. I almost want to let it sit and breathe for longer than it normally would. Before I air it? No, before the next show. You know, it's kind of like, oh, yeah. and it, how do you follow it up? I mean, do you say, okay, well, that was really dark, maybe something lighter. I mean, do you think about that kind of thing with your overall show flow? Well, I put a show out every two weeks, whether I like it or not. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I like the episode, but I mean, it's like, oh my gosh, again, I've got to do this again. I just made a masterpiece, guys. Like, just let the, let's, let's, let's be good for a year. But no, I, I got to put out another one because this is what I do full time. And this is, um, this is what people want. So just keep doing it. But I do have, I, I have started developing kind of a, a theme for the season, right? So mm. like in the summer, I did kind of a pen test stories. I did like four or five of them, right? So it wasn't every episode, but it was like a bunch of pen test stories. And I thought it was like too much. But then in the fall and the winter here, I'm doing a bunch of like government hacking stories. And then, you know, in the spring of, of next year, I'm probably going to do black hat stories. I got a lot of people lined up who have hacked some things personally. And I'm like, okay, let's listen to you break the law. So <laughs> I think we'll, we'll go into that. Right. So I kind of have these themes that I don't really do on purpose, but when I start talking about like, Oh, 
I'm going to do a bunch of government hacking stories. I start getting government to have reaching out to me <laughs> and saying, hey, oh, we can share ours. And I'm like, what? How? Just because I tweeted it, you guys want to say something about it? So, uh, yeah, it just somehow works out that way. I do have to look around for opportunities that, um, you know, possibly I got to pull on that string to see if there's anything good there. Or, you know, I've heard this person and, oh, wow, now I'm getting being introduced to, to them. So, yeah, I'm always jumping on all kinds of opportunities. And now I'm, it's just, it's, the world has opened up so much more just in the last six months of more opportunities than I've, than I can handle right now. And what I need to do as the next step is to get more help on the show, like assistant producers or people who can actually go produce like a whole episode and get it going so that I can kind of like do two episodes at once where they work on one and I work on one kind of thing. Right. Then you can, they, you can offload things like editing and some research and stuff like that. Yeah. Do you do all the edits yourself right now? Well, for the first 40 episodes, I did everything myself. Pretty much pretty much everything, right? There was a couple people that helped me in like two or three episodes. But um, now when I do the narration, I give it to an editor to take out all my redos and ums and oops and stuff like that. And they bring it back to me in a day or two. And then I have a researcher who can write and research some stories that don't require like interviews. And um, I've got, I just recently got a sound designer working on one episode doing sound design, which will come out next week. And then I've got two more um, producers that I've been working with to see if I can get them to help me on some future episodes. Do you ever work with private investigators who like are... In that in that world, I, I kind of think of Steve Rombaum when I think of private investigators who deal with cybersecurity stuff because he used to speak at twenty six hundred all the time until he had to had to step down because he was getting a little uh, I guess too close to the flame. Well, I want to, but the uh, the thing is, is that I don't really come up with new stories. Most of the stories I come up with are something that somebody's already investigated and reported on, and I'm just kind of rounding up all the details. But it would be cool to do some episodes where there's an unsolved case and I have to investigate and I do work with someone like that to say, okay, let's try to track this person down or find this person and, you know, talk to them or something and, uh, you know, do something there. So I do want to do something like that, but that takes a lot of effort. I mean, if you look at, um, you know, some of the big investigatory shows like um, Serial took a whole year to just make one, you know, a season. So... You know, that just takes a lot of time sometimes, and I don't have that right now. Yeah, it seems like something you could get a budget for from some of these big production people, though, because you've got you've got a great track record. You've got the the network now that you should be able to, you know, say, hey, here's a pitch. Here's a story. Why don't you guys give me a bucket of cash in a year, oh, and I'll come back with a, a partnership. show for you. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the show's making some good money, so I do I do have some good funding at this point. But um, finding the people who can do this kind of work is is what's kind of difficult because there's this fine line between storytelling, knowing IT world, and research that you kind of have to do all that. And then for the ear, right? So there's a lot of newsy kind of people who can do that, but then not many people have done it for, you know, the audio. And Mm. that's kind of a different thing altogether because now you're looking for your recordings and clips and anything that you can add to the audio aspect of it. Yeah, your talent pool pool gets smaller and smaller with every little requirement there for sure. That's not much crossover. 
Yeah, serious skill stacking. Have you thought about turning any of this into a book or worked any publishing deals? Yeah, for sure. The uh, I don't know what I want to do in 2020, but it's either going to be another podcast, kind of a longer length one, like seven episodes on one topic kind of thing, hmm. um, or a book. And I should probably do both. But we'll see what uh, we'll see. I'm I'm shooting for both, right? But we'll see what what actually comes out of 2020. But yeah, I think um, I think a lot of people just want to hear all these stories kind of put in a book format, and they're like, it doesn't even matter if it's a new story. But I'm like, it's gonna be lame if it's not any new 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 episodes that I haven't already done. So I think kind of a mixture of some of the some of the old episodes I've already done, put them in the book, and then some new episodes, put them in the book, and kind of just have like six or 10 or 15 stories in a book and put it together. Yeah. And you could do a theme and that would make the book original too. your thoughts on why these stories run together and matter. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, this is perfect. And you have an incredibly busy life getting to the next story. Yeah. So dark neck diaries on pretty much every podcast player out there. Where else would you like to direct people? No, that's it. Darknet Diaries. And then um, on social media, I'm most active on Twitter. So you can find me as Jack Resider on Twitter, and I'll be happy to chat you up there. All right. And that's um, R-H-Y-S-I-D-E-R. And mm-hmm. Jack, Jason, thank you guys both so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having My me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing. For free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Hey, I'm Studio Steve. And I'm Veronica. And we, and we are, are the, the Pod, Pod We have a podcast all about podcasting. We cover everything related to the craft. How to start a podcast, how to improve a podcast, how to promote a podcast, and how to reach a bigger audience. So come check out our podcast, Pod Sound School. We're on all of the podcast players or on our website, podsoundschool.com. We are dedicated to provide our podskis with up-to-date, easy, and actionable information, sometimes outrageous and always fun. And now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. What was that like might just be the most intriguing podcast you'll ever hear. Each episode is a conversation with a regular person who's been through an extremely unusual situation, like Jeremy, who was bitten by a rattlesnake, or Jennifer, who accidentally killed someone, or Luke, who got caught smuggling cocaine. Real people in unreal situations. Listen and subscribe at whatwasthatlike.com.